0: The sermon text for today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. From a dream comes for it for a dream comes with much busyness. And a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. In your mind, what makes a person reverent? What, what is an example of reverence when you think of the word in your mind? Does this person dress a certain way? Does this person look a certain way? Was there anything in the appearance of this person that caused you to think of him or her as reverence? Well, the Bible has much to say about reverence, our text today has much to say about reverence, our world is utterly confused about both the definition and the necessity for reverence. Even the church today is confused about the meaning and necessity of reverence in ways that might surprise you. On one hand, we have those that believe that reverence is the reason why the church is in decline. By the way, the church is by no means in decline. If you think that you, are, you have a very narrow view of the work of God throughout the world. There are those who think that we must get rid of reverence... In order to win the world, so the solution for them is to dress casually, to choose more contemporary music, to adorn the church with fog and lights. Reverence is dead, experience is king. On the other hand, there are those who insist that reverence is gone because we no longer wear Sunday's best. And we no longer have a traditional approach to music and to worship. By the way, some of our most beloved traditional hymns were songs that were set to secular melodies. Not written for the glory of God. A few of them were even songs that were used to entertain people as they got drunk and participated in all kinds of debauchery. So which one is it? Do we need to get rid of reverence? Do we need to dive deeper into reverence? Well, friends, the reality is that both approaches are wrong. Reverence is not perceived on the outside, but reverence is an attitude of the heart. Reverence is not revealed in performances, formalities, and traditions. Reverence is an act of worship and worship can only be rendered in spirit and in truth. Hebrews 12:28 through 29 says this, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Worship that is done in reverence and in awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, we must offer worship to God in reverence reverence, and in awe. Why? Because God is to be feared. This introduces an important concept to the book of Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the attitude of of reverence that humans are required to have As they approach God. You see, there's a tension here, right? We're called to fear God, but this fear drives us to God and not away from God. And we will still think more deeply of this in the future. But this concept of the fear of the Lord is what binds the whole book of Ecclesiastes together. The fear of the Lord plays a major role in this book, and it is part of the conclusion of the preacher after he examines all things under the sun. He says in Ecclesiastes 12:13, the end of the matter and all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of the of man. So thus far, the preacher has expressed his frustration, his vexation, his disappointment with life. But this passage is different. There's a shift in the book here. The preacher here does not express frustration as much as he admonishes us, he instructs us, he warns us. So if this message today lands on you as a word of admonishment, it is because it is the preacher who is leading us to that conclusion. If the Lord convicts you today of anything, it is the preacher who is first leading us to conviction. And how does the preacher warn us in this passage? The preacher does not warn us in formalities or traditions or more reverence or less reverence. He warns us to approach God not with ceremonies or traditions. He warns us to approach God with a tamed tongue. Really, this passage is a big statement. And it says to all of us, be quiet. It admonishes us to be very economical with the words that we use in the presence of God. The preacher tells us that the mark of the fool is that he speaks too much. The mark of the wise person is that he speaks with Precision. The fool, according to the preacher, uses his words like a machine gun. I'm going to say all that I can say, and hopefully some things will land, disregarding the words that create destruction. But the wise man uses his words with the precision of a sniper. Now, I know that many of you are thinking, Pastor Lucas, aren't you a man of many words? And I would say, yes. This is why I need this sermon. The beautiful thing about sequential, exegetical preaching is that preachers often have to be confronted by their own messages. The beautiful thing about a gospel-centered preaching is that I don't have to preach out of my strength in order for the word to convict you. I can actually preach out of my weakness. I can preach out of my weakness because at the end of the day, my job is not to stand before you as the model of wisdom, but to point you to that model in Christ, a model that I need for myself. So today I want to remind you that God's words are more powerful than yours. So learn to trust God's word to accomplish God's purposes. So I have two points. First, we're going to consider the words we utter must be words of wisdom. And the second point is that the words we utter must be words of truth. Wisdom and truth. So the preacher begins in verse 1 saying, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. This is an idiom, it's an expression, it's a Hebrew expression, right? In other words, the preacher is saying, Be careful when you go to the house of God. This is a reference to worship in the temple, temple worship. In the Bible, there were several laws that were designed to prepare a person to go into the temple. Remember, when we think of the temple in the Old Covenant, we should keep it in its covenantal place. Things are a little different for us, right? We we did not enter a temple today. This is a gathering place. This is a preaching place. But we shouldn't draw a direct connection with what is said about the temple and think that, that applies immediately or directly to the church. Actually, the theology of the temple lands not in the building of the church, but lands in Christ, doesn't it? The temple was designed to put a spotlight on Christ. Why? Because the temple was a place of sacrifices. The the temple was a place where God's glory was concealed. And where has that fully been fulfilled in Christ? This is why Christ says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the scribes and Pharisees were confused about what he was saying. But Jesus was saying, something greater than the temple is here. The fulfillment of the temple. If God's presence was concealed in the building before, now it is revealed in the person. And the person is Christ. While we are, while here we gather to sing, read, pray and preach and receive the ordinances, the temple was designed for sacrifices. The temple was a place for ceremonies. So you had to be ceremonially clean in order to enter the temple. There are all kinds of laws about proper washing, not touching a dead body, not coming into contact with a bodily discharge. Not having some kind of skin disease in order for someone to be ceremonially clean enough to enter the temple. But notice here that the preacher is not concerned about any of these laws. He says, guard your step before you enter the presence of God. Then he says, to draw near, verse 1, To draw near to listen. That's what the preacher is concerned about. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. His concern was not that someone would draw near to God while being ceremonially unclean. No, the preacher is warning us to draw near to God with an unbridled tongue. Do not draw near to God. With an unbridled tongue. The tongue is hard, isn't it? It can sin in so many ways. Someone might perhaps say that the tongue is the last to be sanctified. But that is not true. The way we use our tongues actually reveals the condition of our hearts. Isn't this what Jesus says? Jesus says in Luke 6 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of your heart, his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the tongue really is there to reveal the heart. And what our tongue speaks reveals if we treasure good or evil in our hearts. But the preacher is not here primarily uh, concerned with the content of what one says, although content is of great importance. The preacher, however, is more concerned with the amount amount of words one speaks in the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to water a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, be, be slow to speak. Why? Because we have mouths that operate under the sun, but God is in heaven. Therefore, be a person of few words. Now, I want to address an important question of biblical interpretation here. Since Ecclesiastes was written to Old Covenant saints in the Old Testament, and God in the Old Covenant invited his people to come into his presence in the temple, how do we, New Covenant believers, apply this teaching to ourselves? While God concealed His presence in a building in the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, He revealed His glory through Jesus Christ. And listen to this. This is really important. Not only is God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ, it is applied to us through the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, so Old Covenant, God's glory concealed in the temple. You come to the temple in order to enter the presence of God. New Covenant... God's glory revealed in Christ, applied to us through the Spirit. Therefore, we're always in the presence of God, aren't we? There is a broader application to this passage than there, were, there was for Old Testament saints. Because now, we have the glory of God in us through the Spirit. So while the preacher warned the old covenant believers to take to tame their tongues as they enter the presence of God, the Holy Spirit admonishes us today, new covenant believers, to tame our tongues at all times, because we live our lives in the presence of the glory of God. What a great responsibility! We have to master the use of our tongue. We have zero room for idle words. Zero room for careless words, unnecessary words. We have no room to curse with our tongues, to speak words to destroy, to not edify, to build our kingdom through our own words. Why? Because the Lord Is always with us. We live our lives in the presence of God. Verse 3, the preacher proposes an illustration. When our minds are busy, we tend to have very convoluted dreams, right? Does that happen to you? That you're so busy and your dreams keep waking you up. They're confusing. You're not really sure why you're dreaming. Your dreams are not coherent. So he draws this parallel and he says, Likewise, when our mouths are busy, we tend to have convoluted thoughts. So, speak less, listen more. I mean, we heard earlier in the service, Andrew did such a great job reading James 3, didn't he? How powerful the tongue is. And yet, how dangerous it is. James says that no one, no one is able to tame the tongue. Every animal known to man has been tamed, but the tongue, no one is able to do it. So is this a hopeless message from James? No. James is telling us that we need the grace of God in order to... To tame our tongues. I just want to put a slew of verses from the Bible in front of you. Concerning the wi- wisdom of showing restraint in the use of the tongue. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs thirteen nine: Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips come, comes to ruin. Proverbs 21, verse 23: whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. James 1:19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This is powerful, isn't it? I mean, the Bible is not light or superficial about the importance of writing the tongue. The the Bible has an abundance of words of how we ought to have few words. It's an abundance wisdom that we receive from the Word of God. But why do we so often speak more than we should why is it so hard to be measured with our words it stems from pride doesn't it we speak more than we should because we're proud we think that our voice has more value than others you know, I heard the story of the man that was talking about himself and he realized that he was the only one talking. So he stopped saying, enough of me talking about myself, now you talk about me. We like that, right? But why? Because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We don't consider other people as more significant than us. We believe that things that matter depend on us, and they depend on our words. I love how the Apostle Peter addresses the issue uh, when he's speaking to believing wives married to unbelieving husbands. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, it's the word of God, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What is that? Reverence. Reverence. Right? How precise is this? And I am not thinking of applying this passage primarily to wives today. Although it does. But notice the play on words in this passage. The apostle is saying, Wives, you will not change your husbands. With your abundance of words, rather use no words and trust the word of God to be powerful. You just be reverent. You see, to be still, to be quiet, to not speak takes greater faith than to speak. We often speak much because we don't believe God's word will do what God's word promises to do. So we think, I must accomplish these things with my words. So, when you pray, do your prayer consist of a list of requests that you present before God and then you say in Jesus' name, Amen, and your prayer is finished? Do you take time to hear? Do you take time to listen? Do you take time to meditate? Do you put yourself silent in the presence of God ever? Do you find yourself to be more engaged during the singing portion of a service rather than the preaching? Do you speak more than necessary? Are you too opinionated? Do you dominate conversations? Do you take more interest in what other have, people have to say than what you have to say? Husbands, do you speak to your wives rashly when you're angry? Do you say things to your children that you shouldn't say? Wives, do you nag your husbands? Do you use your words to manipulate and control your husband, your children, your home? Brothers and sisters, do you gossip? You know, I find, I find that conversations that go too long often veer into gossip. And a wise person needs to know when a conversation is over. Do you always seek to use your words in a way that is edifying do you seek to build up one another with your words? Notice the example of Jesus. These verses that, are, that we're about to read are just the preceding verses. So what we just read about wives not using a word to win over their unbelieving husbands. Jesus accomplishes His purposes without a word. First Peter two twenty one through twenty three. For to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow His steps. Okay. And what are the steps that we must follow of Jesus? He committed no sin, neither deceit was found in His mouth. When He was reviled, what did He do? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What an incredible passage. Christ, who is the possessor of perfect wisdom, when faced with great injustice, the greatest injustice ever committed in the universe, responds how? Without a word. Christ's response response to injustice is not a word. This is what we we read from the prophet Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But why? I mean, I can't think of a thousand things that Jesus could have said that would have been right. But why does Jesus suffer silently? Because if Jesus had spoken, he would have been right. If Jesus had defended his cause, he would have been justified. And yet our salvation would have never been accomplished. It was necessary for Jesus to die the death of oppression and affliction, an unjust death. It was necessary for Jesus to die condemned as a sinner upon the cross that Jesus died. He carried on himself our sins. For Jesus, to accomplish the accomplishment of the plan of the Father was more important than the defense of his own honor. The accomplishment of the plan of the Father was more important than the pursuit of justice. It was more important for Jesus to suffer silently, for him to Defend, then for him to defend his words. Why? Because Jesus was concerned with the building of the kingdom of God. And not with his own personal vindication. How many times have we won the war of words and yet lost the battle for the kingdom? How many times have we trusted our words over the words of God and built our house on the sand? How many times have we trusted our strength, and did not experience the power of God because of our weak, feeble, fickle words. Jesus accomplished our salvation without uttering a word. Why do we think that we will establish the kingdom of God through the abundance of our words? Did you see what Jesus replaced his words with in the first Peter passage? He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. God, the son, entrusted himself to God, the father. Jesus knew that his vindication would come. But his vindication would come in the Father's time. Oh friend, have you entrusted yourself to God? Or are you trying to vindicate yourself through your own words? Do you realize that if you are in Christ, you don't have to defend yourself? Do you realize that if you are in Christ, your works, your words are actually the evidence of weakness in you? And the words of Christ are the evidence of power. You simply have to believe that Jesus has died in your place. And entrust the word of God to do the work of the word of God. And our words to simply be few. You have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. And if you do, his kingdom is being built even today in your heart. Not through your words, but through Christ's words. Not through your words, but through the word of God. Before the Father, you need to realize this. We have an accuser who uses words. And his goal with his words are to destroy us. And his accusations of us are true, though he is the father of lies. He accuses us of sin. And friends, we know that sin abounds in our hearts. But before the throne of God stands Christ with his word pleading our cause. He is our advocate. He is our lawyer. And he says, Though the accusations against Lucas are true, I have paid for them. I have washed him clean with my blood. So, will we trust our words or will we trust the words of Christ? Jesus stands pleading our case incessantly before the presence of God. So, what other argument do we need? What other word do we need? What other plea do we need but the plea that Christ presents for us? Now let's turn our attention to words of truth. We thought of words uh, of wisdom. Now let's think of words of truth. Turn our attention from wisdom to truthfulness. The reality is that these two virtues must go together. Wise words cannot be untrue. By definition, untrue words are not wise. And words that are true ultimately are words of wisdom. But the preacher is particularly concerned that our words towards God are true. When we speak to God, we must mean what we say every time. Promises made to God must be fulfilled with the highest sense of priority. Vows were common in the Old Testament. Jews would often make promises to God um, with the expectation that God would answer their prayers favorably. These promises would often be fulfilled in the form of a sacrifice. So, we pray, Lord, give us an abundant harvest this year. Give us rain. The Lord would answer, and a vow would be performed—a vow of thanksgiving. Thank you for answering my prayer. So, a sacrifice—a bull, a goat, a lamb, a pigeon—would be presented. Sacrifices were often costly, and once the prayer was answered. Sometimes sacrifices would be forgotten. Do you relate to this? Have you ever prayed for something? And when God answered your prayer, you forgot to give him thanks? Forgot to pray saying, thank you, Lord, for answering the prayer. I mean, we know the story of the 10 lepers, right? 10 out of 10 are healed, And yet only one recognizes that Jesus is worthy of praise. So sometimes the Old Testament saints, they would make promises, but they would would back off of the promise because it would involve a costly sacrifice. The preacher is leaning heavily on Moses here. If you read with me from Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23, you see... Moses says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So he says that not only... He says, first of all, perhaps it's better not to make a vow. But if we have made, made a vow, not only should we fulfill it, but we should fulfill it without delay. This is priority, right? Don't go, don't go build your paneled homes while the temple of God lies in ruins. Right? This is language of Prophet Haggai. Don't go, don't go take care of your things and forget that you've made promises to God. Promises to God come with the highest priority. Promises made to God take precedence over any other obligation that we may have. We ought not to confuse God's mercy and grace with God overlooking sin. Notice that again, in this passage, he mentions the fool. In verse 1, he says that the sacrifice of fools is a mouthful of words. He says here, though, that the sacrifice of fools is a mouthful of lies. In verse 5, he says that it would be better not to promise than to promise and not to fulfill a promise. Now, we don't often make vows nowadays, right? I mean, we make some, right? Uh, David and Grace are going to stand here just in 33 days. And they're going to make vows to one another. We make membership vows. We uh, Just a few weeks ago, we had our deacons come forward and make vows before you. You made vows before them. But in general... Since vows were connected with sacrifices, we don't make vows before God anymore often. Why? Because there's no sacrifice left to, to present. All of the sacrifices find their purpose and fulfillment in Christ. So we're able to say, I don't need to make a vow because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus himself even says in the Sermon on the Mount that we shouldn't make vows. But vows are promises, right? And it is right to make promises to God. So we certainly don't want to make Old Testament vows the same same way that the saints used to do. But it is right for us to make promises to God. But we must make promises to God that we can keep. What God is concerned with is that we are committed to the truth. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 37. He says, simply let what you say be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil may know the older translation that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, when you speak, speak the truth, be honest, keep your promises. Why? Because we reflect God in our actions. And someone who claims to be of God and is deceitful ultimately lies about who God is. So believers should be the most honorable, should be the most honest person at their workplace. Believers should not defraud the government. Believers should be punctual. Believers shouldn't feel comfortable with white lies or any other colored lies. We learned that in verse six. God will destroy the work of the hands of those who do not keep their promises before God. Well, this is a problem. We're not very good at keeping promises. We fail to live a life of holiness. We fail to evangelize. We fail to disciple others. We fail and we fail and we fail. As James would say, we all stumble in many ways. And yet the warning here is that God will destroy the works of our hands. Yet we often believe that we can, through our failed hands, build the kingdom of God ourselves. We believe this kingdom depends on us, but friends, We need to assess ourselves with greater humility. So how do we recalibrate ourselves? How do we rightly assess ourselves? Knowing that we break the promises that we make to God and that we fail in a kingdom that is built on our words that are very often uh, of lack in that very often, lack in wisdom and lack in truthfulness would not be a kingdom that would stand. How do we recalibrate our understanding of who we are? Look at the end of verse 7 but God is the one you must fear. When we have an inflated view of ourselves, when we think too highly of ourselves, when pride runs unchecked in our hearts, the only proper response is to fear God. When we realize that words abound in our our mouths, when we realize that we are not very good at keeping the promises that we make to God, the only proper response is to fear God is to understand that persevering in this way of folly and untruthfulness will ultimately cause our destruction so the pressing question here is do you fear god maybe asking what does that mean Do you realize that God knows every small detail about your life? He knows every thought. He knows every word, every sin, struggle, and secrets. He knows your weak frame, your brokenness. He knows your inclinations. And do you know that if you approach God with your words... Not the words of Christ. You will be destroyed. This is what it means to fear God. Friends, without the fear of God, we'll have no reverence before God. Why should we approach God carefully, wisely, and truthfully if we don't fear God? If we don't fear that God does judge the sinner and the wicked and God does condemn those who reject Him to eternity in hell. Why would we be reverent towards God? When we fear God, we approach Him knowing that He is God and we're not. The preacher said earlier, right? Let your words be few. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is, why this is why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because it keeps us from approaching God as though He is our equal. If God is a consuming fire, and we, sinful men, approach God without fear, we will be destroyed. But if we fear God, if we fear God, we'll know that we can only approach Him through Christ. Because Christ brings to us the glory of God. And Christ takes care of our two biggest problems. One, the sin that we bear. Two, the lack of righteousness that we have. Christ offers to us His righteousness and offers to us to take upon Himself our sin so that we can approach God who is to be feared. But we approach Him protected. We approach Him protected by the grace that Christ provides. So friends, let us use our words with great wisdom. Let us be truthful with everything we say. Let us fear the Lord with everything that passes through our lips. Most importantly. Let us use our lips to proclaim the Lordship and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us trust in Christ, who both forgives us for living like fools and teaches us to grow in holiness and righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father we we all know that in so many ways these words indict us so heavily. Father we are not measured with our words as we ought. Father we are not promise keepers. We are covenant breakers. And Father how we need for your word to do your work in our hearts. And for us never to trust the words of our mouths. Help us, Lord, grow in wisdom. Help us grow in truthfulness as we rest in Christ. For the salvation of our souls and for our hope of eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.